On several previous occasions, I've had the great pleasure and honor of speaking with New York Times best-selling author Ralph Peters. Uh, he is responsible for a whole series of truly fascinating books. Ralph Peters is a retired U.S. Army officer and former enlisted man and has written a number of different books on, on military strategy and probably to the general public is best known for the novels that he has uh, written which uh, are set during the American Civil War and uh, richly informed by the historical record uh, but brought to life in, in a way that is really only possible uh, with the pen of a skilled novelist. And certainly he has done that with a very, very fine book, Darkness at Chancellorsville, a novel of Stonewall Jackson's triumph and tragedy. And uh, I'm very, very grateful to uh, uh, Ralph Peters for making time in his schedule to talk about his newest book published by Forge. Ralph Peters, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I genuinely appreciate it. And particularly that the Milwaukee connection is important because at the Battle of Chancellorsville, the 26th Wisconsin uh, recruited in Milwaukee turned in an absolutely heroic performance, stunningly heroic. Mm. And that is a good thing to mention right off the bat. Um, I wonder, uh, ahead of us talking about this specific book and specific story, if we could hear just a little bit about uh, what you think the special role is or purpose behind these novels uh, set uh, in wartime. What is it that you can do in a novel that would not be possible if you remained rooted in the world of nonfiction? Yeah, actually, I, I think of them as dramatized history, because when we say novel, we think, oh, it's made up. But in fact, in the books, and in Doctors at Chancellorsville, for instance, everyone from general down to private is a real person based on their letters home, their diaries, their memoirs. And so the only thing that's at all fictional is some dialogue and my attempts to understand the inner lives of the characters, what they're thinking. Um, you might also call it docudrama. In English, we, we have, you know, we have a, two categories, fiction or nonfiction. It's novel or it's, or it's, or it's uh, factual. And these books are really a, a sort of a hybrid. Now, why, why write them now? Well, I've been fascinated since the Civil War, since childhood. I always wanted to write about it. But above all, the Civil War is still very much with us. It resolved the issue of slavery, but it certainly didn't resolve all the social and economic issues or all the political issues by any means. And so to a great extent, we're still today working through the aftermath, the long, long after aftermath of a war that supposedly ended in 1865 at Appomattox and shortly thereafter elsewhere. Um, for me, it's extremely relevant. It's and you never force the relevance. You just stick to the historical facts and let the relevance emerge. And one of the key similarities with today that was definitely in play at Chancellorsville was prejudice against immigrants. Mm. Now, in, in, oddly enough, on the Union side, the problem was prejudice against German immigrants um, and also against Irish. But at Chancellorsville, the problem's really the German immigrants. And the backstory's fascinating. The 26th Wisconsin, for instance, those men, the average soldier in the 26th Wisconsin is a little bit older 
than the average soldier in other Union regiments. Because these are, by and large, refugees from Germany after the failed revolutions of 1848. Many of them were freedom fighters. They had settled lives in this new world, this new country they learned to love that gave them refuge. They had wives and children. They had businesses. They had professions. And yet, when war came, these men, some of them even middle-aged, they volunteered to fight for the Union, fight for what they believed in. Many of them were, were active abolitionists, Carl Schurz, obviously. And the, the commander of the 26th Wisconsin at Chancellorsville, which, which took a terrible beating, saving what, was, what remained of the 11th Corps after Jackson's attack. The commander was known to his English customers and friends as William Jacobs, to his German peers as Wilhelm Jacobs. And this guy, with no previous military experience, just turns in this stunningly courageous last-stand performance and saves a significant part of the Union Army. But the, the sad, tragic result is that the Germans are vilified. They're blamed for the defeat at Chancellorsville, even though the German officers in the 11th Corps, the fateful 11th Corps, um, had spent much of the day warning um, their corps commander, Oliver Otis Howard, uh, the, the Army's commander, Union Army's commander at Chancellorsville, Joe Hooker, warning him that the Confederates were making a flanking movement, that they were going to be attacked on the flank. And nobody would listen to the Germans. They just wrote them off. The attack comes. It, it, it's a disaster. And you can't blame Oliver Otis Howard because he's a popular Union general. He's popular with the abolitionist papers. Nobody's going to blame Joe Hooker for it right then because he's got his faction in Congress. So these Germans... Um, many of whom truly put up a heroic fight, uh, were called the Flying Dutchman, accused of just running away. And um, you, you see, things repeat themselves cyclically. So there was prejudice against German immigrants. Later we've had uh, prejudice against successive waves of immigrants until they're finally integrated now. And today we'd never think about prejudice toward German immigrants. But so, without belaboring the point, the, the Civil War is still relevant on many, many levels. And for me, the Battle of Chancellorsville, with its dramatic, dynamic personalities, its, its fortunes of war, its misfortunes, uh, its bigotries, its hatreds, its heroism, uh, you can't get a battle that's more dramatic. And yet it's one that's, that's it's not well known in its details. People just think, oh, that's where Stonewall Jackson was mortally wounded. In fact... More men, more Americans died at Chancellorsville in a couple of days than have died in all of our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan combined over almost two decades. Wow. There are a couple of basic things that I so appreciate about this and other books uh, that you have written, and I, and I think I especially appreciated this about, about this book. I mean, it was maybe exceptionally true about uh, this latest book, Darkness at Chancellorsville. And one of them is that uh, I think for a, a very casual outside observer, they might assume that somebody who is themselves a military man, a proud military veteran, proud to have been part of America's armed forces, uh, might be inclined to write a book that, first of all, glorifies anybody and everybody who's been part of the military. Uh, in really exalted terms, uh, when in fact you don't. You actually 
are very uh, honest and open about the frailties and shortcomings and uh, that 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 are a part, especially of, of many of these uh, of these military leaders who are important in this in this battle. And beyond that, you also do not shy away from sharing with us the grimmest sort of reality about what war means. Can you speak to the honesty of your books when it comes to those two matters that I just outlined? Well, to me, if, if I glorified war, that would be virtually criminal. I mean, no honest soldier would, would ever glorify war. You can honor heroism, and there was plenty of heroism at Chancellorsville, but that's a different thing. Um, war is, unfortunately, the default position for human beings when we face truly intractable, grand, and large-scale problems. We can wish it were otherwise, but it is, it, it's just what we turn to when we can't solve problems any other way, just as in private, our private lives, some of us turn to violence, uh, spousal abuse, etc. But warfare is no more glorious than spousal abuse. Um, it's sometimes a necessity to fight for what you believe in, to, to defend yourself and, you, and your people, but I, I would never, ever glorify it. On the contrary, what I try to bring home to people is the human complexity. I mean, these wars, the Civil War, we often think, uh, picture it as an old-timey, oh, there were simpler people in a simple life. Well, far from it. They were every bit as emotional, emotionally and psychologically complex as we were. They might have faced some different social and political problems, and some of the same ones. But these are complex human beings, and by the way, they are undergoing, they're in the midst, in the throes of an incredible technological revolution that to me uh, was even more disorienting than the technological revolutions of our day. The, the telegraph has gained critical mass. It's on the battlefield now. The first tool in history that allowed human beings to communicate near real time across thousands of miles. You've got the steam power revolution in full swing. Suddenly, instead of crossing, even in the 1840s and early 1850s, you're crossing the Atlantic in sailing ships for the most part. You know, the Irish, after the potato famine, they're dying of cholera on board of typhoid. Take can take six weeks. Suddenly, you can cross the Atlantic in 8, 9, 10, 11 days in steam power. The world seems to be shrinking. Um, News, mass newspapers are very, very popular, and there's, by the way, plenty of fake news in our civil war on both sides. So when I, I try to honor the, the, the humanity and the challenges, the human challenges these people faced, and I guess the last thing on that I would say on that particular account is when I write these books about the civil war, I am not interested in judging anyone. I'm trying to understand them. You can judge them based upon their presentation. I want to know why they made the decisions they did, why they did what they did. And so it's easy to issue blanket condemnations. Uh, when you get up close and look at the individuals, um, it becomes a lot more complicated. So even though I'm a Yankee, uh, born and bred, I, um, my, my Civil War ancestor died, ancestor died wearing Union blue uh, down in the, in the Carolinas, uh, but when I try to, when I'm writing about Confederates, I have to try to understand them on, on their own terms. Same for the North. I think we've got plenty of political noise going on, and it, it troubles me deeply 
when people invoke the Civil War to um, make their point, whether it's extreme left or extreme right, and they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know anything about the Civil War, except that, oh, it had, you know, it freed the slaves and Lincoln was a good guy. It's just all more complex than that. And history matters. History matters. We don't believe it anymore, but history matters as much as math and science and physics, because without a sense of who we were, an honest sense, an objective sense of who we were, it's very difficult to be a, an informed citizen. It's difficult to make the right electoral choices. And it's also reassuring when you understand that as tough and brutal as history could be, others have gone through even worse than we are going through. I'm sure you've heard people say, oh, we're going to have another civil war. Well, no, we're not, actually. Or, the, or our country's never been so divided. In our civil war... 745,000 Americans died, far more than in World War II. We were more divided then. We were more divided, in my view, during the late 1960s and early 1970s. So this is cyclical, too. History gives us a sense of who we are, of where we've been, of what the repetitive, repeated challenges are, uh, but also it can provide, in its, in its dark way, uh, comfort to us that you know, we're not the first to face problems of these dimensions. Mm. We're speaking with Ralph Peters and talking about his latest book, which is titled Darkness at Chancellorsville, a novel of Stonewall Jackson's triumph and tragedy. I, I want us, of course, to uh, talk about uh, some of the principal players uh, who were part of this battle, but uh, I, I want to ask you about a couple of more general themes that uh, come up uh, in your book. Uh, one of them is the kind of interesting sense of statehood that was uh, very much on the minds of, of many of the combatants. That is, that that, and I think this speaks to the complicated picture that you've been talking about already, the fact that it was not just a matter of the Union and the Confederacy, but it seems like, especially within the Confederacy, there was a really a, a vivid sense of, well, those soldiers are from Virginia, and these soldiers over here are from Georgia, and these soldiers over here are from North or South Carolina, and that that, it was presumed, ha had a lot to do with the kind of soldiers that they were or the qualities that they brought to the battlefield. I think for the more casual uh, observers of our, of our history, this is the kind of thing that most of us just have no awareness of whatsoever. Can you talk a little bit about, um, a little more about how this tended to play out and, and particularly how it played out in certain moments uh, during the Battle of Chancellorsville? Well, absolutely, and that's, that's a very astute observation because we were really, in 1861, on the eve of war, we were, in a sense, two different countries. In the industrializing North, there was already a strong sense of American nationhood. <clears throat> you weren't primarily from Massachusetts or Rhode Island or Pennsylvania. I mean, you were, you knew that, but you were an American. The South was different. It was lagging. It was had an aristocracy in all but name. It was agrarian, and it was even feudal, F-E-U-D-A-L. And so in the South, you didn't have this developed sense of being an American. It was, there was some sense of it. But on the whole, you were a Virginian first, 
or a Mississippian first, or a South Carolinian first. And that was very much a part of why various officers fought for the South. Many of the names we know or half know, obviously Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, Jubal Early, someone like Wade Hampton, these men were against secession. Wade Hampton stood up a very unpopular stance in the South Carolina legislature and preached against secession. But when secession came, these men from the South felt they couldn't fight against their families and their friends, and their states were ultimately their identities. Robert E. Lee was torn about it. Um, And it plays out in various ways throughout the war. One, there's almost this constructive rivalry with regiments from different states trying to outdo each other. But in the South, they're not sharing things. Uh, It's very, you know, there's centralized supply to an extent. But a lot of the supplies are supplied directly from the state governments to the soldiers. State governments maintain their own hospitals for their own soldiers. And you're not particularly welcome if you're not from their state. I mean, in Richmond, there's not just one big Confederate hospital. Uh, There are several Confederate hospitals. Some are for states. And, oh, by the way, on both sides, there are specific hospitals for venereal disease, which was a severe problem in the Civil War. But so to your point, yes, we were a different country in many ways, but state identities played in very, very strongly. And if you take the case of Stonewall Jackson, Thomas Jonathan Jackson, before he gets the nickname Stonewall, here's a man, you know, we're anxious to tear his statues down. But Jackson in the 1850s, when he was a professor at VMI in Lexington, Virginia, he annoyed the devil out of his neighbors because he started a Sunday school for free blacks and slaves. Jackson broke Virginia law to teach slaves to read. But when war came, he identified with Virginia. And he actually was from what's now West Virginia, which becomes a separate state, of course, as a result of the Civil War, it breaks off. But that's his, you know, he, he, he's been teaching at VMI. He can't turn his back on his neighbors in Lexington, Virginia, in the Shenandoah Valley. So all these human dilemmas, and people are free to judge as they will. I just wish they'd know the facts before they judged. Right. I'd love to read a, a brief portion where you are talking about Stonewall Jackson and his conflicted state of mind. Enigmatic man. Yes, absolutely. We'll we'll explore some of that. But this is what you write at one point. You you write, The impending war, the war he did not want, against which he had warned and prayed, had darkened the last months in Lexington. But when war came, he pledged his troth to Virginia. He could not do otherwise. Slavery was a hideous institution, even if men could point to biblical sanctions. Twice he had purchased slaves at their request to save them from being sold south, where treatment was not as mild as in Virginia. But he could not allow godless northerners, atheists, and Unitarians to invade his home and dictate terms to his people. If the South wished to go its own way, it was tyranny to employ force to prevent it. And tyranny was an abomination clothed in the mantle of Herod, of Caesar. He had wept for what he knew must come, the blood, the loss, the heartbreak. He had believed, a part of him still did, that the only humane approach was to do all to force the war to a swift conclusion. 
I really love the way you have written that, and it is certainly a, a compelling portrait. I wonder uh, to what extent can we know that this was Stonewall Jackson's attitude? Uh, what kind of legacy did he leave behind him where what kind of record makes this clear, that these were his attitudes about war, about slavery, and, and so on? Well, we certainly have some of his letters. We have his family's letters and memoirs. He was widely written about. Of course, he dies mid-war as a consequence of Chancellorsville. Um, he's widely written about. His, his career is well documented. And the Civil War actually was fought by an astonishingly literate, astonishingly literate generation. Um, they, they didn't always spell well. They expressed them, but they expressed themselves very, very clearly. And so there's a lot of documentation about Jackson. In intelligence, you talk about reading the externals. We know what he did, when he did it, and we have clues as to why he did it. But that's what I'm truly trying to understand. And with Jackson, I personally do not sympathize with Jackson's views. He was a religious fanatic. Even though in other respects he could be an incredibly merciful man, on the battlefield he was a, he was a butcher. But... He believed that he was doing God's will. We know that. He was a devout Presbyterian, um, more Presbyterian than John Knox. And so we do have a lot of documentation. And what I try to do, as in the passage you read, which you read beautifully, thank you, um, I'm trying to understand him not on my terms, not on the terms of 2019, but on terms of 1863 in his world. And that's the great leap of imagination you have to make based upon the facts to try to get inside these men. Because ultimately, I always tell people to, to be a, a novelist or a, or a historian, you don't have to like people, but you have to be fascinated by them. Mm. And you of course, Sto and Stonewall Jackson is an endlessly fascinating figure, so complicated in so many uh, respects. Uh, in fact... Uh, you have uh, Robert E. Lee thinking as he ponders Stonewall Jackson, he had never met a man as strange as Jackson, a hanging judge with a child's heart. Can you say a word more about what made Stonewall Jackson such an odd figure, especially when it came to uh, someone who, who was a general? <laughs> yeah, well, again, to my personal view, having studied him, and studied him, is that he was on the behavior spectrum, the autism spectrum somewhere. And he, he was very awkward socially, always had difficulty. But he over, he's a man of great strength of will. And he overcomes many of his difficulties, not all of them, by sheer strength of will, sheer grit. Um, he's a curious person where he, he's much more comfortable speaking to blacks in a Sunday school class much more comfortable around women than he is around men. He can get tongue-tied. At, at VMI, he's, a, he's not a good professor. He just memorizes lessons from books and basically recites them. The cadets ask questions. They don't get answers. He's, he's considered Mad Tom, um, and they have all Tom Fool is another name for him. He's one of those odd men. And Ulysses S. Grant, is, is, although a very different personality, is similar in the sense that they only find their metier, they only find their talents on a battlefield. 
I mean, Jackson's not good at anything else. He, you know, and he he tries things. He, you know, they kind of work for him. But on the battlefield, he is incredible. His his instincts are brilliant, and the soldiers. He's hard on his soldiers. Tough on them. Uh, he's, you know, he will shoot them or hang them. If you know, if they get out of line. And yet he has that magic charisma on the battlefield that makes soldiers just love him. And he and Robert E. Lee are a devastating com- um, combination against the North. And even though Chancellorsville is considered in many ways Lee's greatest victory, it's a Pyrrhic victory because he loses Jackson and, and many another man the South can't replace. It's, it's, a, it's a bloody, bloody battle stretched over several days. It would be, I think, interesting at this point to uh, talk about the principal character on the other side, uh, on the Union side, namely uh, a man by the name of Joe Hooker, who is uh, also an intriguing figure, but a figure very, very different from Stonewall Jackson. What is most helpful for our listeners to know about Joe Hooker and who he was and what what kind of a what kind of a military officer he was? Well, it'd be easy to dismiss Joe Hooker because a wild man that was said about his headquarters when he was for several months commander of the Army of the Potomac, the Union Army in the East. It was said that his headquarters was a place um, where no decent woman could go and no decent man would go. Um, he liked prostitutes. He was a heavy drinker. Just a, a party hardy kind of guy. And yet, he was also dedicated to the Union. He reformed the Army of the Potomac, reformed everything from hospitals to regimental insignia. He, he with his aide, Dan Butterfield, who wrote TAPS, by the way, they developed this brilliant strategic plan, an operational plan for the Chancellorsville campaign. And everything goes well until he actually comes up again. He surprises Robert E. Lee, takes him by surprise, gets a jump on him. But when he comes up against Lee, he freezes. And the problem seems to have been that Joe Hooker, who was a heavy drinker, we know he stopped drinking for the campaign. He wasn't going to be accused of being a drunk. And when serious alcoholics go cold turkey, the effects can be very bad. I mean, some of his fellow generals felt that he would have done a better job if he had just drunk less but kept drinking the, the symptoms of withdrawal are there. And then midway through the battle, a sh- he's standing on a porch, a shell hits a column, conks him on the head at the critical point of the battle. Here's a man who freezes up, then has bad luck, bad judgment, gets hit in the head. And rumors persist that he was drunk in the battlefield, but there, that was because of his, his concussion knocked him out for a while. People knowing Hooker thought, well, this guy's drunk again. No, he wasn't. But he was dysfunctional uh, for hours during a critical phase of the battlefield. And that's the kind of thing that happens in warfare. The North had a brilliant plan, but faced with battlefield realities, it fell apart. And that's the way war goes. And to me, as a leadership lesson, you know, everybody always wants to study successful leaders. And that's fine. But if you really want to learn about leadership, study the failures. And Hooker is a man who's a good fighter. He's good at what we up to division command. Corps command he does it creditably. 
But when he gets to the Army command, when he's the guy responsible for everything, he's not following orders, he's giving the orders, he freezes up. He can't, he, he's reached a level at which he can no longer function. And we see that in militaries everywhere, and even in our own today, where we will promote people above a level at which they're terrific and promote them to a point where they, it's beyond their capabilities. We did it in Afghanistan with General McChrystal, brilliant special operator, brilliant battlefield fighter, and then you put this guy who's a darker-than-night killer in charge of diplomacy, and, and, and it didn't work. It was a, he was a good man in the wrong job. And so these things happen, and um, there are so many lessons on both sides. One of my heroes, Carl Schurz, a uh, German immigrant, um, division commander on the battlefield of Chancellorsville, struggles, struggles, struggles to get it right, um, and then he gets it as right as he possibly can under the circumstances, and he gets the blame for failure. Life and war are not fair. <laughs> That's for sure, isn't it? Um, speaking to the point of leadership and what makes a good leader uh, in times of war, uh, both on and off the battlefield, uh, a, a couple of interesting points from your book come to mind. One is an observation that you actually make about General Robert E. Lee. Uh, and I would love to have you uh, expound on this just a little bit. You say at one point uh, in, in talking about Robert E. Lee's relationship with, with uh, some of his uh, key subordinates who played an important role in uh, Chancellorsville. You write, Lee had the gift not merely of greatness, but of discovering greatness in those around him. Explain the most important ways in which this was true. Well, he was good at recognizing talent. Now, as in any army, there's only so much you can do because there are political interests, etc. But he recognized Jackson for what Jackson was. He recognized Jackson's immense talents. Um, and he picks others. He picks good division commanders. Uh, Lee's problem is Confederates do lead from the front. We always say lead from the front. Well, they did, and they died disproportionately, the generals and colonels. So by the end of the war, you know, they're getting to toward Appomattox, the Union has this reservoir of talented leaders, and Lee's out of leaders because they're dead or crippled, wounded, um, beyond the ability to fight on. But the ability to spot the talents or the weaknesses in subordinates is critical to good leadership. But if I were identifying one factor that matters more than any other, it's the ability to inspire subordinates. If your subordinates believe in you, as they did in Jackson, as they did in Lee, uh, you can you can perform miracles or near miracles. And I've also found, though, in my own life and through the study of history, that there's no template for the perfect leader. Leaders can be very contradictory men, like Jackson. Jackson's brutally hard on his soldiers, but they just adore him. You can have other leaders who are relatively lax, and the soldiers don't respect them. Um, they're different, different leaders are right at different times. Um, some of the German officers who had been professional officers in Germany and then went over to the revolution of 1848, they have to learn how to handle American soldiers. Because in, 
any of the German militaries before German unification, especially the Prussian, you gave an order and it was obeyed. And suddenly, you know, Americans, even Americanized German immigrants, they want to know why. Why should they do that? You know, <laughs> okay, why am I going up that hill? And, and it's, a, it's an adjustment. So that old saw about the right man in the right place at the right time. Well, at Chancellorsville, Stonewall Jackson was the right man in the right place at the right time. Uh, he led, leads this brilliant flank attack, and he does something very foolish. He rides out in a confused battlefield with the fighting still sputtering on. It's after darkness. There's confusion on all sides. Everybody is disordered. And without coordinating with his own troops, Jackson rides out in front of his own lines. His, his party is mistaken for Union cavalry, and he's mortally wounded by his own soldiers who think he's a Union, leading a Union cavalry attack on them. And that's not a spoiler, because people know that Jackson was wounded. What's interested is, to me is, again, the psychological aspects and the sheer brutality of the fighting. It's a battle in which... Wounded men burn to death because they're in a, a brambles in a forest that catches fire, and soldiers can see them burning and hear them screaming and can't get to them through the flames. I mean, back to the idea of glorifying warfare. No, there's nothing glorious about burning to death as a wounded man who's trying to crawl away from the flames that are overtaking him. Right. Toward, to this point about uh, a great leader being able to inspire those uh in their charge. One thing that is uh, a point made uh, more than once is that sometimes, at least to a limited extent, that kind of leadership, that particular facet of leadership, can sometimes involve careful deceit. At one point, you, uh, in early in the book, uh, share a moment uh, when uh, Robert E. Lee is speaking to some of his soldiers, and you write, it took all of Lee's self-control not to share his desperation, but his officers, even Stonewall Jackson, had to believe that he was unshakable. And much later in the book, you have General J.E.B. Stewart saying uh, Jeb Stewart had almost expected and uh, dreaded uh, such an answer, uh, uh, but he refused to show any sign of discouragement. The first rule he had learned about leadership was that the men had to have faith in the man commanding them, the second rule was that lying was fine as long as it got results. It's so interesting to think about the crucial role that this kind of deceit could have uh, in the moment. And of course, uh, military history is also uh, replete with examples of that kind of deceit being taken way too far or played out in, 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 in ways that were actually desperately counterproductive but in the story of chancellorsville that is part of the story of how these great leaders were trying to lead their own men by sometimes keeping certain aspects of the truth from them but indeed and i think that happens to some extent in all armies at different times but lee is a fascinating character who even really constructs his own image his, throughout his life it's not just in the civil war he, his father, he was in the, the black sheep side of the Lee family. Um, the woman he married, uh, Mary Custis, her father did not want her to marry Robert E. Lee because Robert E. Lee was on the bad side of the Lees. His father 
been a had skipped out on his debts, had had been re- literally a criminal, even though he'd earlier been a hero of the revolution. So as a teenager, especially after he arrives at West Point, where he goes to West Point for a free education, there's no money in the family, in his branch of the family, and Robert E. Lee starts building himself into this armored knight, this man who has every social grace, who speaks carefully. And to the end of his life, he'll speak like a Regency gentleman. You know, and, and he's one of the few who really do speak in those Victorian cadences. Most of the stuff we read in memoirs is, is nonsense, is prettied up. Um, but he constructs this image of himself as imperturbable, unflappable, fearless. And it works for him. It wouldn't work for somebody else necessarily, but it works for him. And he, the troops have to believe in him, and he knows that. And Jackson senses it, but he's not as articulate about it as Lee. But Lee knows that the most important thing for his soldiers is to believe that they can't be defeated. And unfortunately, as you just, you just alluded to it, after Chancellorsville, this incredible victory against three-to-one odds, Lee starts to, in modern parlance, drink his own Kool-Aid. He believes that his army, this, these men, these amazing men in the Army of Northern Virginia, cannot be defeated. And what does he do? Marches north toward Gettysburg. Mm. You also tell us that uh, uh, General uh, Stonewall Jackson, uh, at least in this particular chapter of his career, uh, was prone to keep the details of his plan pretty much to himself. You write uh, uh, early in the book, uh, strike first, strike hard, never give the enemy the first grab at the stick. Jackson had a plan, although he had not shared it. Jackson intended to flank the foe yet again to destroy these trespassers, to slay them until there were none left to kill. He had not wished to be rude. He never did. But words were costly to him, and fewer words meant clearer words. So, yeah, so, so Stonewall Jackson is making a very conscious choice there to not, in a sense, share more than he believes is absolutely necessary to share. And that by doing so, by sharing fewer words, uh, he is, in a sense, gaining clarity in what he is saying, which is a really interesting idea. Yeah, it worked for Jackson to a point, but at Chancellorsville, it ultimately fails him. Even though the South wins the battle, it's much bloodier than it had to be, because Jackson didn't share his plan with any of the subordinates. He didn't share with corps commanders, he didn't share with division commanders. And as a result, when he's wounded and carried off the battlefield, nobody's sure what, what he was up to, what, what was he going to do next. And it leads to great confusion. But Jackson was enigmatic, he was eccentric, he was brilliant in this one narrow narrow way. He was a brilliant battlefield fighter, uh, tactically brilliant. Um, but he, he, even in the start of the war, he wouldn't tell people what he was up to. His subordinates would, had to guess. They'd just get an order, march from A to B, and they had to march A to B, and when they got to B, he might be there waiting for them to say, now march to C. And so... He was worried about secrecy, uh, what we call operational security or OPSEC today. Uh, The newspapers at the time were publishing everybody's plans and wild rumors, and Jackson just felt that uh, the less people knew, the better, because he knew. 
And that's something we, we would never do today, because we've learned with American soldiers um, and American military leaders, you always want your next subordinate to be able to step into the role. If you're taken sick or shot or your plane, your helicopter shot down, the next guy in line needs to be able to step seamlessly into the role. And that's one thing Jackson got wrong, ultimately. Mm. Uh, when, he is, when, when he is wounded, utter confusion sets in, and the morning gets off to a slow and awkward start, turns gruesomely bloody for the Confederates, who will ultimately, through sheer grit, turn it around. And also, the, the, you know, there's so many things, there's so many factors. The Union are doing pretty well until they start running out of ammunition. General Hooker, the Union commander, had wanted his men to move fast and light, so he limited the number of wagons they could take. And through this multiple battle of multiple days, they start running out of artillery ammunition, small arms ammunition, and that's a great contributor to Confederate uh, victory. And there are many other factors as well. But warfare is complex, and the challenge for me is to capture this complexity in a way that's absolutely clear. And that's really, it's a hard thing to do. But, you know, when you're reading the book, everything should be clear to you, even though you're getting a sense of how complex it was for the participants. Right. Well, and, of course, you're also telling us this complicated story from multiple points of view, primarily from the view of the Confederates and from the view of the Union soldiers. And and even within those two sides, we are hearing from different people on each side of this conflict and and their varying perspectives. So that in and of itself makes such a difference. In our last couple minutes, I'd, I'd like you to touch uh, on, on a matter we, we breezed past very quickly early on, namely the matter of technology really changing. And in a couple of different ways, the telegraph, which was an important factor, but an inconsistent one, and then also the, the, the matter of firearms and how there was a real difference between North and South. Yeah, and, be, and those are critical points. The telegraph, we've already had, laid a transatlantic cable before the Civil War. Now, it breaks early in the war, so it's not able to report the news to Europe. But it's amazing. I mean, imagine, the, prior to the telegraph, you could move this, at this uh, you'd send a message at the speed of the horseback or stagecoach or a, a sailing ship or the human foot. Now, suddenly... You can communicate across oceans, across continents, across thousands of miles. That was truly revolutionary. But some people overestimate the practical utility, and a number of times the North tries to use telegraphs on the battlefield, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. At Chancellorsville, they tried a new telegraphic system that failed them badly. Hooker's plan was very complicated. It required telegraph communications between the broadly distended flanks, and when the telegraph went down, the plan went down. And to you have that, you have steam power, you have armored ships powered by steam all of a sudden in the mid-war, and um, you, you got things that move fast, railroads. The Union has more railroads. And by the end of the war, you know, the Union is centralized, and you know, if you are in northern Alabama and a, a Union commander and you need horses, We'll get you the horses from western New York and ship them by rail to Alabama. It's astonishing. Warfare becomes modern in our Civil War. By the end of the war, the Union Army is a modern army with a modern staff, modern logistics, modern medical care, comparatively speaking. It, it really is a, an amazing feat. 
where the South, the South never really, really puts that together. As far as military technology goes, this is really ironic how fast it changed. The, the men who become infantry generals, Robert E. Lee, Jackson, Hooker, um, McClellan, all these men have been junior officers or mid-grade officers in Mexico in the late 1840s in the war with Mexico. And they pulled off an astonishing victory that the Duke of Wellington didn't think they could do. So they're coming back and they're looking at the lessons of how they fought in Mexico and how it worked for them there. But in just a dozen years, between the end of the Mexican War and the beginning of our Civil War, suddenly rifled weapons, rifles, and rifled artillery are present all over the battlefield. In Mexico, there were were units of riflemen, but a rifle was slow to load. It wasn't uniform. Um, Parts were tough to replace. By the time we get to the Civil War, we're mass-producing rifled weapons. And that extends the range of the killing zone by at least a factor of three. Uh, Suddenly, artillery that was used primarily in point-blank or short-range bombardments can shoot over a mile with some accuracy. And so these men on the battlefield, in Mexico, they've done the same thing that the Duke of Marlborough did in the early 18th century, Frederick the Great in the mid-18th century, Napoleon a half-century or earlier, and it worked in Mexico. But suddenly, when you get to a place like Gettysburg, you can't cross that mile-wide field with impunity because the ranges of the weapons are too great. And it's astonishing how long it takes them to figure it out. By the end of the war, some do. By mid-war, some do. But for the most part, right up to the end, you've got these generals who learn their trade in the war with Mexico trying the same thing over and over again and wondering why the casualty rate's so high. And it's not because they're stupid. It's because they knew what worked for them, we always try to apply what, worked, what, apply what worked, but also the speed of technological change had, had just literally disarmed them uh, mentally. Uh, they could not grasp how fast things were changing around them, which makes it obviously relevant to our age as well. Hmm. It is so intriguing to read this story and to experience, experience it in, in so many different ways. And uh, we sense uh, the, the cost of war, the way in which, as you have one uh, of your figures saying it, war demanded all of a man. And uh, its costs uh, are many and varied. And uh, the story of Chancellorsville is uh, uh, among the most fascinating, if one of the, the, the least known uh, stories from this uh, this important conflict. And I want to mention that there is an epilogue in which all of the principal participants uh, in the battle at uh, Chancellorsville, uh, you tell us what their, their final fate is. Many of them killed later in this conflict, some killed at Chancellorsville, and, uh, and others living on to serve their nation in other ways. It's an incredibly rich, complex story. You've told it so well. The book, again, titled Darkness at Chancellorsville, a novel of Stonewall Jackson's triumph and tragedy, published by Forge, the author Ralph Peters. Ralph Peters, thank you so much for uh, yet another superb book, and thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show. I always enjoy our conversations. Well, thank you very much, and I look forward to speaking to you again.